Welcome to Bloom, a podcast about anything and everything, which features conversations with people who have led meaningful, interesting and flourishing lives in order to better understand the world around us. I'm lucky to be joined today by Rowan Kellick, a highly regarded and acclaimed Australian and British author and columnist with the Australian newspaper. He's one of the preeminent journalists and writers specialising in Asia-Pacific affairs, having lived and worked in the region for decades, including four years as a China correspondent in Hong Kong. Rowan has won two Walkley Awards for his coverage of China and the Asia-Pacific, and has published three books on contemporary China, including Party Time, The Party Forever, and Comrades and Capitalists, Hong Kong Since the Handover. Rowan, thank you for your time today. Thank you, it's great to be here. So today we're going to be reflecting on the extraordinary and still unfolding situation in Hong Kong, which has been roiled by mass protests and demonstrations against a proposed extradition bill with China, proposed by the Beijing-appointed Hong Kong executive. The Fugitive Offenders and Mutual Legal Assistance in Criminal Matters Legislation Bill would subject Hong Kongers and those passing through the city to the jurisdiction of courts within the legal system of mainland China, which are controlled by the Communist Party. Now, this is understandably rankled with the people of Hong Kong for a variety of reasons, which we'll uncover throughout the interview. But before we get there, as previously mentioned, you lived and worked in Hong Kong as a China correspondent for the Australian Financial Review at the time of the 1997 handover. Can you take us back to the colour, movement and feeling on the ground during that historical moment, including the hopes of average Hong Kongers for their city, as it was handed over from Britain to the People's Republic of China, and perhaps what it's been like for you to see millions marching against what's been called encroaching authoritarianism from Beijing 22 years later? It was pouring with rain. (laughs) What everyone who was there remembers most about that night just a terrible downpour and so you saw the British troops playing bagpipes in the rain and uh, Prince Charles, Chris Patton, the last governor and uh, the Chinese representatives, Jiang Zemin, the party secretary of course and so on. It was a really Tumultuous time. My, uh, I went to hear Martin Lee, the leader of the Democratic Party, speaking on the uh, from the balcony of the legislature, and I wrote a book soon after, as you say, in which I posited three possible futures. One is kind of carrying on as they were. Uh, one is um, becoming just another provincial Chinese city, as Lee Kuan Yew said it was fated to do. Uh, And the other was a kind of uh, becoming a model for a democratic rule of law, China, model for its sovereign. And I kind of plumped in my book for the middle way that it would kind of carry on as before. And that happened. And uh, mostly, mostly, but uh, because the National People's Congress in China retains, which is the kind of ultimate legislature controlling all of People's Republic, Uh, They contain the final say uh, for legal appeals. What this has meant is that any 
big constitutional issue has come to them and they've interpreted it in line with the Chinese constitution, which is basically a one-clause constitution. It's actually quite a, a, an exemplary constitution outlining lots of human rights and very much in line with uh, liberal democratic constitutions, but the first clause says that, uh, in effect, China is ruled by the Communist Party. And so that mm. then the rest falls away. So the interpretation is there by the NPC. And those interpretations have started to raise questions about whether China will actually uh, ultimately allow Hong Kong to continue in mm. with its own system. This one country, two systems formula that Deng Xiaoping negotiated with Margaret Thatcher, how long this will continue. And the accession of Xi Jinping rapidly changed things mm. uh, because he has no patience really with the time of Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping talked about um, in foreign policy, hide uh, and bide, hide mm. your real strengths, bide your time. Mm. And Xi Jinping has had enshrined into the national and party constitutions his thought uh, on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era. And it's the new era now. Mm. And this is an era in which he has no patience for one country, two systems. Only for one country, one system. Yeah. He's purifying, purging China, mm. centralizing, personalizing power. So things are changing rapidly, and that's what we're seeing. And um, so that's kind of the uh, bit of a surprise yeah. result in the last few years. No yeah. one predicted Xi Jinping. So before Hong Kong was really, and I would give credit to the. Um, uh, to Beijing, they'd pretty well left them to it, mostly, until the last few years. But under Xi, now all bets are off. Yeah. So could you maybe step our listeners um, through the timeline of events in 2019 in, in terms of the most recent protests and some of the key figures at play on the ground now? I mean, what does the situation look like in the last two months and why has it drawn such uh, international attention? Oh, it's drawn international attention because of, uh, over a million people in the streets. Where did we last see this? I, I, I'm trying to think in Venezuela, have, the, have there ever been? I don't know. I haven't been to Venezuela, but I think maybe despite the terrible events there, we, we haven't really seen a million people in the streets. So I think it's the number, mm. about 7 million people live in Hong Kong, including all age groups. So to see a, a million adults in the streets is... Uh, uh, and these are streets pe many people around the world know because mm. Hong Kong is much visited and uh, people are aware of it. Um, Hong Kong was just a little backstory. Hong Kong was has been derided both by the British and, uh, and by the Mandarinate, if I can put it like that, uh, of... China, people whose language and culture is that of northern China, really, as being money grabbing. Yeah. 
that basically as long as people in Hong Kong are allowed to make money, they're happy. And they're not interested they, in civil and political they're rights. They're not interested in the mm. rest. They couldn't kill us. The arts, culture, freedoms, you know, they are not bothered as long as they're able to make loads of money, eat lots of their delicious food, <laughs> buy property, mm. they're happy. And this was, the, in my view, is the biggest calumny yeah. against those people. Yeah. And this, so this is what we've seen. And then what happened? So it's kind of the frog in, you know, the yeah. frog in the, in Boiling the pot of water. water. It's just boil and boil. What happened was the uh, uh, a group of students started demonstrating what became known as the Umbrella Movement yeah. uh, and uh, five years ago. And um, uh, lots of young people on the streets. And uh, this caused a lot of rethinking. Oh, maybe people in Hong Kong do care about these mm. things. But it was always obvious because, for example, the anniversary of the Tianem, the, uh, the sending of troops to quash mm. uh, the demonstrations in and around Tiananmen on June the 4th, 1989, aroused huge concerns in Hong Kong. Not primarily because, oh, this is going to happen here, but out of a genuine feeling of empathy with those, mm. those who'd suffered. And every year, masses of people have been turning up to Victoria um, Gardens to commemorate that event. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands. I've been amongst them uh, myself several times. And so that's a clue. Then we had the umbrella movement, lots of young students. And we saw then... Uh, the, the rather um, split democratic movement in, in, in uh, Hong Kong, several parties, different aims, different ideas of how to get there, um, had not succeeded, although the legislature is loaded against them, but even in reaching the capacity that they could because they were so divided, we saw then a new entry of young Hong Kongers mm. into not only street politics, but after that into uh, legislature yep. politics. And now we're seeing the next wave, mm -hmm. which is um, a fairly united, well-organized demonstration against uh, what they see as a really troubling uh, um, move to be able to send to China for trial in courts there uh, people who have uh, committed, alleged to have committed yes. offences uh, by China. Mm. And they've seen in the last two or three years people kidnapped out of China. Book, from booksellers, for instance. Yes. Mm. Booksellers ranging to... Uh, to um, Xiao, the, uh, the, the uh, founder and prime mover of a company which uh, has made a lot of the big families in the party rich and probably is perceived to have known too much. He was kidnapped from the Four Seasons apartment building and uh, has not been heard from since. 
taken into China. So, uh, so this represents the removal of that. It's called the Great Firewall that they yes. had, the buffer between Hong Kong's uh, jurisdiction, legal uh, and, yes. and criminal system, and that of China's. So don't um, worry. So, so the thinking is, oh well, these people have been abducted. Mm. In the future, no need for the abductions. It'll just go through the courts. The trumped-up charge be, of historical. Uh, moved. In Australia itself has had extradition um, laws awaiting ratification by our parliament, but the parliament has has declined to ratify them. Mm. Actually, the government hasn't finally placed them before the parliament yet, um, and may not now do so. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I mean, I mean, many Australians without the extradition treaty will remember the treatment of um, Chinese Australian business figures like Stern Hu, who was sort of over in China and then um, spent a number of years in jail as well, uh, with with little transparency as regards to the the, the, the yes. charges against Matthew him. Matthew Ng is a particularly terrible case because he was charged with something which is not only not an offence in Australia, but is uh, uh, viewed as uh, admirable uh, business poli uh, policy and uh, he was charged that that was bribery which he took over a company and then the chairman of it was invited to join the merged board mm. and that was a, that was assumed or claimed to be bribery and he was jailed for uh, a period of uh, 11 and a half years and his 14 year old daughter effectively committed suicide um, uh, she was so upset what was happening mm. to her beloved father and Matthew thankfully is back here in Australia mm. now yeah so in many ways I think this what's happening in Hong Kong is the most significant geopolitical event in the world at the moment it's an extremely complicated and high-stakes chessboard which throws into high relief many civilizational, political and economic contests. It's symbolic of a new democratic power at work in the 21st century uh, through the digital revolution and social media, as you, as you referenced, contrasted with the emergence of the digital surveillance state in China, and which also foreshadows China's growing authoritarianism and intolerance towards separatist movements on its peripheries, notably in Xinjiang, Tibet, Taiwan and now Hong Kong. So can you reflect on some of these broader points, the broader significance of what's happening in Hong Kong now with regards to China? Yeah, so really it asks the question of what what is China? This is a very difficult question. China, the word, the English word comes from Qin, the, the kingdom, which uh, was the kingdom of Qin Shi Huangdi, the first emperor who's tomb is guarded by the famous terracotta warriors, some of which mm. can be viewed here in <laughs> Melbourne right now at the That's National right. Gallery. A very marvellous exhibition. And uh, China um, has been really a, a child of imperial dynasties until 1911 when the final imperial dynasty was overthrown. And uh, people were known as fundamentally the name of the dynasty. So I'm a Qing Ren, I'm a person of the Qing. I'm a Ming Ren, I'm a person of the Ming. And then in the late 19th century, Chinese intellectuals uh, 
felt it's time to modernize the or they modernized China. So they came up with an, a name for China, Zhongguo, kind of central central country, central kingdom. And uh, uh, also, who are we who are the living here, who are most of the people we see around? So there's kind of... Uh, so they used a name from the past, mm. Han, and they applied that to... Uh, most of the people living in, in China. And then the rest, so then this became caught up in party ideology, Communist Party ideology. And so in 1949, the Communist Party won the civil war against the nationalists, took over. And so the, this was all instituted now that the Han are the have about 94% of the population, and the other 6%, uh, 54 or 55, I forget, so-called minorities. Yep. They're called minorities, ethnic groups. And you can see an idea, that you can see the way in which China is kind of a Han nationalist state mm -hmm. in line with that thinking that emerged in the late 19th century. When you go to the... Um, annual fortnightly sessions of the National People's Congress. When you come out of the uh, Great Hall of the People, they're spilling over into the square. The square's locked off from other people. Mm. The buses are there to take the de delegates back to special delegate hotels. But meanwhile, they're roaming around. And the 6% are wearing special costumes right. to show that they are colourful minorities. Yeah. Uh, agreeing to participate in this. The, the Han are wearing Western-style business attire. Yeah. So this is, this is gives a pretty good clue to thinking. And uh, what, we're, what we're seeing uh, now is that these boundaries these uh, around the, the borderlands of China hmm. are being... Um, cemented. Mm. Xi Jinping is, is someone who has his eye on history. As I said, he's personalized and centralized power. He's mm. purified and purged the party. <laughs> and now he's making sure that the country already uh, in the late Qing, pretty well at the physical outside extremes Seems. of its borders not going to let any go mm -hmm. mongolia though was kind of let go by a deal between what we call mongolia outer mongolia mm. between mao and stalin so china doesn't claim that does claim taiwan which is actually not being ruled very significantly at all by mainland any mainland Chinese um, uh, dynastic control, it, uh, you could say it was ruled to an extent by the Qing, but mm. the Qing was a foreign dynasty, Manchus, mm. who, who invaded China. Anyway, there's Taiwan there, which is a, a kind of crusade now on, in the mind of Xi Jinping to mm. reassume or to assume according to your thinking, assume Taiwan into the into the whole Hong Kong, Macau, uh, Portuguese for hundreds of years and the first uh, 
European uh, settlement really in, in the whole of East Asia, Macau, Hong Kong, and then Tibet, Xinjiang in the northwest where a million people or so are uh, have been plunged into re-education camps. Mm. Uh, these places are being uh, firmly not only uh, put under control, uh, Han, the aim is more and more Han people to live in those places. Right the aim is to sinicize the religions of those places. Yes. Uh, so the, the five big religions of, of China are now required to be sinicized and so that the references are all internal rather than universal or external. So Tibetan Buddhists must think China and uh, Xinjiang Uyghur Muslims must think China and, and Catholic uh, bishops must Catholics be approved by must, the state. And so on, yeah. yes. And so um, this, is a, this is a really bold move, if you like, by Xi in a time you mentioned of uh, global internet. Mm. He's created cyber sovereignty using the internet as a tool of control rather than of uh, freedom. Yes. But of course, pe there are people in China who use virtual private networks and find out all sorts of stuff. People are traveling all the time. People in China, uh, many hugely intelligent, independent-minded people. So this is a big roll of the dice mm. by Xi to uh, to cement the power of the party before, as he sees it, it comes under ever greater siege. Uh, but what what is it for? Yeah, is a, is a difficult question. You know, he would say it's for China or for its own sake. So he sees the party as uh, representing all that is best in China, past, present, future, and he personally embodies the party. Yeah. So, um, so this is, uh, he talks about his red genes, his red heart, because he was born son of a, a former vice president and long vice premier and long marcher. So it's a bit of an existential battle and the board, it's being played out quite substantially in the borderlands. Yeah. So there's an adage which says that journalism is the first draft of history. And I think a lot of the commentary, as we've said, is sort of focused on the particulars of the recent protests. But you did mention the, the historical roots, uh, which are feeding into the anti- um, or Han or anti-Beijing sentiment in Hong Kong um, are, are a result in Hong Kong at least of 156 years of colonial rule by the British which yeah. has sort of imparted um, notions of universal suffrage, uh, civil political rights, uh, democracy and so on. So I mean contrary to what the party would admit over the past century and a half there has been a long and significant history of democratic movements within China and Hong Kong um, which have been marked by powerful symbolic demonstrations such as those we've just seen and talked about. And these recent protests um, are happening at a particularly auspicious time, um, which I hope you can give some life to um, in the ensuing discussions. But it's 100 years since the May 4th movement in 1919, uh, 30 years since the Tiananmen Square massacre in 4 June 1989, and as you've already mentioned, five years since the Umbrella Movement. So I was wondering if you could reflect on the ongoing yearning and striving for democracy 
in China, um, including Hong Kong, with reference to those key events, and I guess how it um, abuts or jars against the, the the Chinese or the the CCP's conception of China, you know, where, where it says that democracy and that sort of stuff doesn't work for the Chinese people. Right. Chinese people have had elections in themselves um, quite soon after the uh, um, the Qing last Qing emperor abdicated. Uh, there was an election. There were elections right, right through until uh, the late 40s, actually, with increasing participation. And you'd have to say, uh, variable effectiveness, but elections with considerable participation happened in China. And of mm-hmm. course, we've seen in Taiwan since the late 80s, yeah. um, People who now call themselves Taiwanese, they don't really call themselves Chinese, but most people there call themselves Taiwanese, and they've had it, but you can describe them as having a Chinese ethnicity. Those people um, uh, have uh, shown huge appetite for uh, elections and uh, for liberal democracy generally, and... um, uh, we've seen, uh, we saw in the 38 uh, years between the end of the Qing and the decisive victory in the Civil War, we saw all sorts of, of all sorts of uh, shoots emerging in China, of modernization of uh, education for women, of uh, a, a strong interest in human rights, so and so on. So people have said, oh, China didn't have a role in the drawing up of the international framework that under which we now operate. Mm. It's not really true, because mm-hmm. actually China had quite a big role, and, and, and uh, uh, Chinese lawyers were very involved in the framing of the UN human rights documents and so on. Uh, So it's just that they weren't uh, Chinese Communist Party. It wasn't People's (laughs) Republic which succeeded. So, uh, and, and many of those people would have been students uh, in the May, who were on the streets of Beijing, May 4th movement, yeah. who were informed by some of the thinking that was raging through Europe at the, at the time and that uh, uh, tore Europe asunder to some extent in the early 20th century. Mm. Uh, that thinking was everywhere, including in China. And we've seen, uh, we saw the 1980s, the most liberal and open decade of the seven decades. October the 1st is 70th anniversary of People's Republic. The 1980s was the most open decade. Uh, It was the decade following, by no coincidence, following the death of Mm. Mao in 76. And um, this is a time when people thought we can carve out an alternative future. Yeah. There's a lot of discussion about this. 
one of the leaders in those thinking, in that kind of thinking, uh, was Liu Xiaobo. Yeah. Uh, very striking. Uh, and to, in some ways, an ascetic type of person, uh, in some not, um, but a very uh, striking thinker and uh, uh, someone ar around whom lots of people coalesced. Mm. And we saw him uh, pursue, keep pursuing these thoughts. He was jailed after 1989 and then um, jailed again when he came up with Charter 08, which was signed very rapidly online by uh, huge numbers of people uh, with a sort of framework for what I think could be described as a social democrat yeah. type uh, China in which party and state were separated. The separation of party and state was starting to be considered when Jiao Ziyang was party secretary and then he fell and was in 1989 because he was perceived to have uh, done too little to quash the protest movements then and he was uh, died in uh, still in in house arrest so that thinking of separating party and state re-emerged in charter 08 and its drafting led to Yusha Bob being jailed for yeah. uh, uh, state for attacking state security, one such strange, strange charge. Yeah. And then he, of course, died two years ago around this time yeah. uh, of liver cancer, in still under, mm. still incarcerated. It's the most shocking, really shocking chain of events. And yeah. people, um, many people in China admired him and w will continue to do so. Mm. Yeah, and a lot of commentary uh, has kind of centered around this um, question of uh, one country, two systems, mm. and how it's really been dead um, for over sort of five years now and even longer, arguably. Could you kind of outline quickly what one party, two systems was meant to look like? Uh, maybe speak about yeah. the 2047 transition date and, and I guess the significance of Xi uh, in all of that in personalizing power and, uh, and ruling into perpetuity. So it, it's... Uh... It's about the law mainly, because this is the... China has no separation of powers. There's only one source of power, and the, the courts, uh, the, the army, for example, is the party's army. It's not even the state's army. It's mm. the party's army. The courts are run by political and uh, legal committees all over China. Committees of the party decide policy and ultimately um, decide convictions or sentencing for controversial matters. Not every, but controversial ones. And um, so the, the, the one, this is the one system. Uh, but as you said in your introduction, Hong Kong uh, has had since 1840, 1841, when the uh, Opium wars took place between Britain and China, and uh, uh, China was required to cede Victoria Island. Mm. And then in 
1897 ceded what became Kowloon and called Kowloon and New Territories, which was on the mainland of China. Victoria is Hong Kong, the, the main island, which is just off it, everyone knows. There are many other islands that comprise Hong Kong. Mm. So uh, since Britain uh, uh, attained actual sovereignty over Victoria Island and a treaty control of the rest, British legal system has been holding sway there. So people have got used to being able to appeal to courts, uh, even against ill treatment by the authorities. They've become used also to uh, a pretty lively, independent free media. This is the regime which introduced at a time uh, under British control when corruption was a byword in Hong Kong involving local property developers, involving British public servants. The, the whole place was awash with corruption. The Independent Commission Against mm. Corruption was introduced there. And that's been a model followed in the rest mm. many places in the world, including here in Australia. That word, and that soon cast fear into people and has been very successful. Uh, and it is, has been independent. That word is completely unacceptable in the PRC. So in a PRC-controlled Hong Kong, you would have a commission against corruption, but not an independent right. commission. And so what re the reliance people can place in it is difference, different. People in Hong Kong have come to rely on the law, mm. on the courts to look after their interests. They haven't always been uh, uh, well looked after by the administrators, mm. both the British, the succeeding administrators, but uh, they've had the law, they've had, the in, uh, they've had access to independent information through, uh, through media. And of course, it's a free port as well. So these uh, range of freedoms are part of what life in yeah. Hong Kong is and the identity of people there. So I mean, you flag there's that looming culmination of the 50-year transition from the handover in 97 until 2047. So we're looking forward now, um, in which the one country, two systems model will be replaced by essentially the one China model, which is Hong Kong is just another provincial city within China. Given the sort of, as you mentioned, the sort of growing security of identity and prominence of identity in provincial regions like Hong Kong and, and Taiwan, particularly amongst the youth, how does how do those sort of two timelines cohere? Because you've got, on the one hand, the two growing demographics and populations in those peripheral Chinese provinces who have a stronger sense of themselves as Hong Kongers or Taiwanese rather than ethnic Han or mainland Chinese. And yet in 2047, you've got this sort of ticking clock of another 28 years and Hong Kong will be, you know, melded into greater China. So what, what does the sort of the future hold over the next 28 years, given we're seeing so much protest and angst now? Yeah, the question is, what, what will China look like in 28 years? I don't know. Yeah. Xi, uh, Xi Jinping has, uh, has through 
he's got three big roles party in order of power the most powerful party secretary then head of the military commission and then the third is president which enables him to travel internationally given the appropriate protocol and so on but through abolishing term limits for the presidency um, he's now able to stay in power for mm. in effect it means for however long he wants and it's going to be risky for him given the number of people who've been purged and jailed on corruption charges um, to to uh, his life will be a, a risky one I think post retirement if that may happen so we can conceive he may want to stay in office for a considerable time he's now age 66 I think and um, at the same time so she represents one pole and you can see his uh, popularity in China the China continuing to have considerable economic success, international success, and uh, you can see nations around the world uh, flocking to the Chinese lead, uh, political leaders, liking the Chinese model of cyber control, of uh, nationalism, of strength of uh, strength at the centre. The Belt and Road mm. Initiative uh, is effectively a tool of uh, weaponizing mm. China's economic rise and heft. Uh, naturally, it's uh, attracting people. And we've, we're seeing autocrats around the world coming together, admiring she is probably the, the model. So she talks about Putin as my best, my most intimate friend. There's Erdogan in Turkey and so on. Is the future theirs? Mm. This is a really existential question for the world. You know, is the future yeah. one of uh, uh, people having a greater say in closer to where they live? Is it... Uh, is it a future of living under um, the umbrella of uh, an all-consuming state that um, will look after people, as it were, as long as you're willing to uh, cede an amount of autonomy to, to the state? And I think this is an open-ended question, but it's not... Many people think right now that that's the way the tide is going. I'm not convinced that this is going to necessarily be the future for ever and ever. We've mm. seen the tide come in and the tide come out, even in China itself. Yeah. And um, uh, while probably the, the subject that is least debatable in China, even with... Uh, those highly many highly individualistic, free-thinking people don't want to hear the word federal. Mm. Um, China's the only substantial country in the world in size terms, which is not a federation, but 
who knows, maybe at some stage China will have to may consider mm. um, uh, uh, some kind of federalization. But the, at the moment, the tide is certainly going against it yeah. in the other direction. Uh, but we're also seeing uh, those countries in East Asia that are bordering China, the 14, uh, um, not all intimate friends, you know. So uh, a, a Chinese academic friend of mine, Zhu Feng, talks about China as a lonely rising power. Yeah. So while there are those autocratic friends like Erdogan and Putin and so on, um, it's, it's still hard for China to locate many in our region that are going gangbusters in the same direction. Uh, so we'll see what happens. We can all coexist and we need to because we're all much more engaged than ever we were yeah. in terms of people's movements, in terms of movements of capital, of uh, the supply chains and so on. And we need to learn how to coexist even though our systems are different. Yeah. But it's a great question which system will mm. ultimately prevail. Maybe none will prevail. Yeah. Maybe we'll just continue to coexist. But within China, will will those borderlands start to uh, uh, be able to um, breathe a little more in their own right? It's, it's hard to say. But I think the hist one thing history shows us is that it's very hard to expunge the motivations of uh, uh, historical loyalties, hmm. of religious loyalties. So to those uh, Buddhists who are Tibet, uh, who are who are living in Tibet, are unlikely, I think, to be Sinicized, yes. for example. So we'll see how it plays out. This is these are important questions and. In Australia, we tend to look at it purely through the prism of will we get a coal shipment to land it yeah. in Dalian or something. This is a very, mm. <laughs> it's interesting, but this is a long way from the yeah. centre. So just the final question is, at crisis points like the one in Hong Kong at the moment, what should Western democracies, including Australia, be doing to you know, express solidarity with those who feel that they are being repressed? In Hong Kong, but also at a, at a, I suppose, a governmental level to dissuade China from going down the path of something which could catastrophically end up like another Tiananmen, for instance. The Chinese Communist Party spends a lot of money on seeking to control the debate overseas as well as locally because uh, there are echoes, there's no doubt that the tone of the debate internationally is felt in China. And we've seen strident criticisms um, this week, actually, of uh, remarks made uh, by and uh, complaints made by foreign countries of um, about treatment of its own citizens, not that the word citizen is very much used in China. Mm. The alternative is to say nothing 
and to um, in fact seek advantage by saying nothing and uh, uh, but there's not a lot of evidence that uh, saying nothing achieves much. China believes that uh, even speaking about what's happening in China is unacceptable if you speak in a critical way of course if you mm. speak in a complimentary way that's something different but if you speak critically this is interference in domestic uh, affairs and Hong Kong is part of Chinese sovereign territory so people talking uh, critically of, about what's happening in Hong Kong is is viewed by the state as unacceptable. Um, it's unlikely that by saying things, Western countries are going to achieve change. Mm. But by saying nothing, uh, by standing by, then the West is ceding, constantly ceding ground, mm. uh, including back in our own countries. Yep. And uh, so if we are not prepared to say anything uh, against behavior we regard as egregious anywhere, yep. not just talking about China, but in other places, it's a personal view, then I, th I feel that uh, uh, we are conceding the right even to speak and to act mm. domestically and to an extent betraying our own, betraying those international values that we've made our own. Are yeah. there international values? I believe that there are. And this is part of the battleground is that... Uh, the view of that's been being pushed by Shia, particularly, is that uh, uh, of uh, of a shared destiny for humankind, and by shared, the view is each state and each government, particularly, uh, has courage of its own set of rights or values, mm. and. Uh, the question of universal values is a very important one. If that is abandoned, and some of the judgments I've seen by the UN's Human Rights Council seems to uh, indicate that there's a big battleground there as well, then, uh, then we're in some considerable trouble and uh, uh, we have to rethink lots of things even in our own country if we can't find the yeah. uh, courage to speak internationally. Mm. Rowan Kellick, thank you very much for your time. Okay, great to be with you. Thanks.